I believe you've been uh, taken through a series on the Ascension with Frost in the mornings. And uh, I'm moving on a little bit to Pentecost, which is Pentecost Sunday. Uh, although I did have in mind preaching on the intercess- intercession of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. It's where Jesus has gone. He ascends into heaven. He sit- sits down at the right hand of the Father. And that- that's a sign of his work being accomplished. And being seated at the right hand of the Father, I've actually prepared a whole sermon on that, and it was all typed up for you for this evening, and you know, I felt the church this morning, maybe I should just move to Pentecost, so I've been busy this afternoon preparing this one instead. But if you've got the whole evening, I'll preach both to you. Don't look so forlorn. I'll just preach the one. But I get quite excited about the thought of Jesus at the right hand of the Father praying for us. And just a, a little snippet out of that for you. What does it mean that Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father? To sit down means the accomplishment of his work. And he ever lives to intercede for us. What does that actually mean, that Jesus intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father? I'm moving forward a little bit touched like this because I know what it's like when you're sitting behind a head and... Uh, there's only one person who can't see me, but you can see me now. <laughs> Oops, somebody else can't see me now. I'll have to dodge in between. Um, interceding at the right hand of the Father. There's a, a wonderful passage in the uh, letter to the Hebrews, chapter 7, where it unpacks, in a whole three chapters, actually, Melchizedek. I don't know whether you've touched on Melchizedek at all during the ascension. Uh, fabulous study. Uh, Melchizedek. Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and you go back into the Old Testament and look to see what the author of Hebrews is writing about, and how Abraham gives tribute to Melchizedek after he's rescued his nephew Lot uh, in a fierce battle, and he's bringing back the tribute. And he gives him a tithe. He gives him a tenth of it all. And when you, you unpack the whole meaning of it, you discover that um, Aaron, who's not yet been born, and Levi, who becomes the, the, uh, the head of the line of the high priests in the Old Testament, is still in the body of Abraham, and Abraham's giving a tithe to another high priest whose name means Melchizedek, king of, um, king of righteousness uh, and peace. It's king, righteousness, and peace. Uh, and it's fantastic to see his name there. There's no genealogy of Melchizedek. He comes, he appears... He has no beginning, he has no end. It's as though he's, he's never died. He's a type of Christ. And the writer of the Hebrews says that Melchizedek is, um, that Jesus ha- is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's greater than Aaron. He's greater than all of the, old, the high priests who lived and died because he's a priest who lives forever. And it's his blood that intercedes for us. In the same way as a high priest on the Day of Atonement took blood and he sprinkled it on the altar for the sins of the people on the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It was the sacrifice of the very best of the flock, the blood that was taken there as an appeal to God, as it were. It could never really take away sins, but only the blood of Christ could. And all of that you've got in the Old Testament foreshadows what happens when Jesus comes and he's at the right hand of the Father and just in the same way as the picture that we've got that was given to the Jewish people about the cost of sin and the need for a sacrifice to be given, Jesus 
is our sacrifice and our representative uh, at the Father's right hand, and his blood intercedes, uh, intercedes for us. And he cries out not for mercy for us, he cries out for justice for us. Because he says, it is not just that two people should die for one person's sin. And I have atoned for them. And that's what's actually happening now. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He's ascended into heaven. And his blood intercedes for you and I with effect. And it takes away our entire guilt. Our guilt is literally removed by the sacrifice of Christ because he intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. And we've got some 10 days, I can't remember how many days it is after the ascension that the day of Pentecost comes. And we celebrate it a week later, the following Sunday, after Ascension Sunday. So it's about Pentecost that I want to speak. Is Jesus interceding at the right hand of the Father not just with his blood, but with for the outpouring of, that, of the Spirit, he's told the disciples to go and wait in Jerusalem until they receive power from heaven. And the power of the Spirit falls upon the people. But when I talk about the power of the Spirit or ministry in the power of the Spirit, what kind of picture do you have in your mind? What is ministry in the power of the Spirit? Is it revival? Is it, is it something like we see in, in a... A, a big charismatic gathering where there are a lot of people present. It's a, an intense sense of the presence of God and people are getting healed and uh, people falling down and, and then there's tongues and there's prophecy and there's high-octane, spiritually charged atmosphere at some conference or convention or clan gathering or something like that. Perhaps, or perhaps not, in, as we look at the way that Jesus describes ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit, because there are many manifestations, if you like, of the power of God. But let's get down to what Jesus says when it comes to ministry in the power of the Spirit, because we are Spirit-filled believers. Those who are in Christ, we are born of the Spirit and filled with the Spirit, and we're to function in the power of the Spirit and minister in the power of the Spirit. So let's revisit Luke chapter 4 here, which is a description of Jesus' first sermon, as it were, in Nazareth. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. As I, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All of the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now that was a Saturday, a Sabbath day to remember. Ministry in the power of the Spirit, as Jesus went about it, is described in the words from Isaiah chapter 62. Ministry to the poor, the spiritually blind, the captives, the oppressed and the disenfranchised, the preaching of the good news to the poor. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we don't need to be surprised that God gives to us a heart for the poor and a desire to minister to people in their need as well as to tell the good news of Jesus to those who have never yet heard. But who are the poor? And who are the rich in this world? Jesus is beginning his ministry in the town of Nazareth, possibly around about half the size of Edry as it stands this time. And in synagogue worship, there was an official who would look after the scrolls. They weren't books as we know them, but scrolls. And the official had brought the scroll to Jesus, and, and Jesus uh, takes the scroll and he sits down. Now, why does he sit down? Well, that's what they did in, it was the other way around in the synagogue. He would sit down to teach and everybody else would be standing up. Sounds weird to us. Uh, but that's the way it was. He sat down to give the address. And the passage that he read was one of the prophecies from Isaiah which described the Messiah's ministry the Messiah who is expected, and his ministry to the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. And he quotes from Isaiah 61, it is actually, verses 1 to 2. And what the people were expecting him to say when he read this passage that was describing the ministry of the Messiah who was to come, they were expecting him to say, one day, this will be fulfilled in your hearing. That's what everybody said when they read it. One day, this will be fulfilled in your hearing. But Jesus instead applies it to himself and he says, this day, this day, it is fulfilled in your hearing. It's a claim to be the Messiah 
whom they were expecting, whom they were waiting for. And in the passage, he outlines what he is going to do. It's, it's like his manifesto if he were a politician, which is to preach good news to the poor. And all that is involved in doing so, which is proclaiming freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, release for the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this is, according to Jesus, ministry in the power of the Spirit, because it begins with these words, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me. And under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, we are empowered by God to go around and do good. Now, this isn't good works for salvation. It's quite interesting. When we read Ephesians chapter 2, uh, I think, is it um, verses 8 and 9? But uh, in Ephesians, there's this wonderful description of how we are saved. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not because of works, so that no one can boast. Absolutely. But then when we read on in that, we read on that, but God has foreordained, foreordained the good works that we should do. Uh, so we have in Ephesians 2, uh, we're saved by grace alone, but we are saved in order to do good works. We are not to do good works in order to be saved. It's wonderful how it actually qualifies. It is the transformation that takes place in the lives of spirit-filled believers. You cannot be filled with the Spirit without starting to bear something of the fruit of the Spirit. And the evidence is here within this church and within the ministries of this church over the decades. And as we look forward to the future, you cannot have the DNA of God within the church, the presence and the power of the Spirit within the church without there being fruit of that ministry that is in the like of what is described in the Bible and in the ministry of Jesus. So we have here one, see if you can remember these, the source of the anointing. Jesus is anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit at his baptism. It's wonderful we've got the whole Trinity there. Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and the Father speaks. This is my son. You are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. It's a wonderful moment when he consecrates himself to the Father's will for him in a very special way that is the beginning of his ministry. And it's not incorrect to say, I believe, that God the Father is also well pleased with every believer who submits to, to the Lordship of Christ and testifies to their faith in the waters of baptism by coming baptized as a believer in order to wholeheartedly follow his will. And there is something about being baptized in water and being baptized in the Holy Spirit, as it were, the, the imagery of being totally immersed and soaked, as it were, with God, uh, that, that somehow these two belong together, even though they may not come at the same time. Some people attest to having a, an empowering of the Holy Spirit that is sub subsequent to conversion. And I would testify to that also. 
A moment when I realized that if I wanted to be truly filled and truly empowered by the Holy Spirit, you have to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. It's not just your little ticket to salvation, your little passport to heaven, your kind of safety net and insurance policy type salvation. If you're going to be a real believer, you have to submit to the Lordship of Christ and say, Jesus, everything, my heart, my will, my mind, my body, my future, my ambitions, everything under the Lordship of Christ, fill me with the Holy Spirit and forgive all of my sins and let me be a follower, a disciple of yours for, for the rest of my life. Oh, that's kind of inviting God, isn't it? It isn't that we're going to be filled with more of the Spirit. It's God, the Holy Spirit, is going to have more of us. It's not like God measures it out in quantities. I'll give you a little bit. It's more, you know, God will fill us in, in so much as the capacity that we allow. And if all the doors are open to God, then surely there's going to be a true fullness there. Yes, we're born of the Spirit. Yes, in a sense, we're filled with the Spirit at the moment of conversion, theologically correct. But there is some relationship here between the Lordship of Christ when we have a mind to truly follow Him. And I see that picture ideally taking place in baptism, where all of it comes together for us as believers, where we give our hearts totally to the Lord, and we're baptized in water, and we are baptized in the Spirit, even if it doesn't happen all at the same time. It happens somehow theologically together in the same moment. And there is here the commissioning of Jesus as well. You're my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. And where does the Holy Spirit lead Jesus? We've got the outworking of the, of the anointing uh, here. I, quite, I, th I think it's quite interesting that Jesus isn't led by the Holy Spirit to the synagogue in Nazareth where he can begin his ministry. Where is Jesus led by the Holy Spirit? He's led into the desert to be tempted of the devil. And we find that after he overcomes all of these temptations, what happens next? He returns from the desert in the power of the Spirit. And there's something in that for me. I worry sometimes for people who haven't fully prepared for the consequences of what it means to be baptized as a believer and to de devote their lives to Jesus Christ as Lord. I worry for new Christians who are not well informed enough to know that bad things are going to happen to good people. Because it does happen. I know of people at the moment, I could break my heart over them, who've somehow reached out with very limited understanding of faith, and somehow, almost, almost at this kind of superstitious level, and at a very ill-informed level, and bad things have actually happened in their lives through which they seem to have lost their faith altogether. Why? Because there was an expectation. Somehow, why do we get this false expectation from that if we're, be, we're going to be believers, we're going to be 100% for God and everything else, oh, that means that everything is going to be great. It's going to be heaven now. You know, paradise here and now. Nothing can, bad can happen to me because I'm a Christian now and I've given my life wholly to God and then all of a sudden something goes wrong. 
And it always happens to every one of us, and we need to be prepared for that and the temptation that goes alongside it. Because that's when Satan will come in, and if we're not well informed enough to know that we're living in a fallen world where God, though he is with us, things will still go wrong for us. Well, the people that we love, we're going to be badly hurt by that. But it's just like the parable of Jesus of the two houses, the one built on the rock and the one built on sand. And if we're building our house on the rock, yes, the storms will come. The storms will come and they'll beat those houses. But the one that's got a foundation on Christ will stand. Jesus overcomes those temptations. We don't know what the intensity... Well, this was not no picnic for Jesus. This must have been highly intense for him. But he overcomes and returns in the power of the Holy Spirit and he preaches his first sermon and he starts to unpack Isaiah 61. Expect temptation and expect difficulties but trust in Jesus through those times and just say, Lord, I might not understand all this, and this is, and I, I don't even know if you're hearing my prayers because it feels as though my prayers are bouncing off the ceilings and the walls, but Lord, I'm speaking to you in faith as a believer in this moment, and I'm saying, Lord, I'm, I'm going to continue to trust you through all of this, even if it feels as though I'm hanging on by a thread, I know that I'm held firmly in your hand. And the pain and the difficulties and the sorrows and the loss and the injustice that we go through can be in God's hands a form of tool that can shape our lives in godliness. This ministry of Jesus, the gospel that he describes from Isaiah 61, is holistic. It's not just the sharing of words. It's not just caring for the needy. It's good news for the poor. The ministry of Jesus is also a mandate for the church. A mandate for Jesus, a mandate for the church to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to re re recovery of sight for the blind, release for the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Why do I say that? Where is the evidence in the Bible to say that the manifesto of Jesus that we get from Isaiah 61 is the same for the church? Because Jesus said this, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. To be a disciple of Jesus means to be as he was before we know what he knows. And the disciples who followed Jesus knew that. Their goal was to be like him. And he commissions them in the same way. Even in the words of the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. The same gospel that he mentions here. So let's unpack a little of its meaning. To preach good news to the poor refers to what we might know as the gospel message. In its narrower sense, primarily it is good news 
to people on how they can be saved. Words. How they can be saved from sin and its power and its judgment. There is an oft-used quotation which is actually a uh, mistakenly attributed to Francis of Assisi. Uh, it's incorrect, but I'll mention it anyway. And it's this one. You've probably heard it before. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. I mean, it's very clever. You know, preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. There's no evidence that Francis of Assisi ever said that. And in fact, I know what this is about. It's a corrective. It's a corrective against people who are all talk and no life that matches. You know, it's a correction against the aversion that evangelicals in the 80s and the 90s or the 70s perhaps had against any form of social ministry because they thought that social ministry was social gospel and all we're called to do is to preach the gospel to people. Never mind opening up the church to have a, a gingerbread club or a <coughs> parent and toddlers. We're evangelicals and we've got the message and we need to go out and knock on the doors and it was a correction to that. Because the ministry of Jesus, as he describes it from Isaiah 51, is holistic. It's touching every part of life. However, it's an overcorrection. If it is used today, in a sense, to make us comfortable about saying nothing to anybody about Jesus or the gospel. Because it is not, it is not possible to preach the gospel without words. It's not all action. Anybody can do action. The most wonderful Buddhists and even humanists can be very kind to their fellow creatures, their fellow men and women. But where's the gospel? Where's the good news about the salvation that only Jesus can give? We need words too. And so to preach good news to the poor, poor or to preach the good news. To proclaim freedom for the prisoners. The imagery here is not prisoners in Balini or wherever, shots. It's prisoners of war who've been dragged away into exile by a conqueror. Think Babylon. Think Egypt. Dragged away into exile by a conqueror. And there is a word that is used twice in the Old Testament here, uh, and it's a word that's used by Jesus as well, but uh, in the New Testament. Uh, the word Exodus, there's a whole book called Exodus, and it's all about escape from Egypt. God's deliverance for the people from Egypt. Oh, there's so much, I mean, there's a sermon in that in itself. Uh, well, the wonderful thing about captivity and a promised land and a Passover lamb and an angel of death that passes over and they escape through the waters. It's like imagery of baptism and being on a journey through a wilderness towards a promised land. It's uh, some of the background of Pilgrim's Progress where you've got all of this wonderful allegory of, uh, of a, a Christian uh, going through the wicked gate and looking towards the celestial city. It's a picture of life and release for the captives 
release for the prisoners or freedom, freedom for the prisoners is like that. It was like that in the Babylonian captivity when all of a sudden Cyrus comes up and he, re, he has a policy of repatriating the people. And the Jews see this as God's intervention as they find a way back to the ruins of Jerusalem and rebuild it, its temple and its walls under Ezra and Nehemiah. This is the picture here. Freedom to the prisoners. And how did those people in Egypt feel under the oppression of the pharaohs? When we read about the little children being murdered by the, because they were worried about the way in which the Jews were increasing in numbers and how they wanted to cull through genocide this population in order they may no longer be a threat. These were terrible places for them to be. And they are set free. And it's a picture of what it is like with all of the dysfunctionality of living without Christ that people within the community are caught in. And hearing about suicide rates amongst particularly young men under 50, hearing about that this morning, the tragedy that it is the highest killer in terms of the rates of, of uh, death under, under 50 for men is apparently a suicide. don't have the, the, the source of that information, but I heard somebody saying that this morning. I don't disbelieve it because of people experiencing despair. The gospel of Christ can bring hope to people who are in despair and can give a meaning for living, a construct for life, a new birth that brings about not only inner transformation but outer transformation. It's, a wonderful, it's wonderful to be part of the church because we've got such a message to bring to others that is life-giving. And it's one that we can continue to live out, even though we might go through hardships and difficulties and have our own trials and temptations. Nevertheless, with our lives built upon the foundation of Christ, we can stand firm against the storms. And as we persevere, following Jesus as Lord, it can lead to fruitfulness within our families and in our communities. I never, ever, will ever regret giving my life to Christ as a 19-year-old hippie in the middle of a pop festival in London, in Windsor Park, of all places. Thinking of the wedding yesterday, I will never, ever forget. You know, he's thinking, it's a strange thing, you think you're giving away everything when you give your heart to Jesus. You think you're giving up everything, it's gonna cost you, and it is gonna cost you. But you don't, not a clue of the blessings that are going to come from giving your life to Christ. That's the, the strangest paradox about preaching the gospel. Everybody's trying to keep everything for themselves because they think they're going to be devoting themselves to something that is going to destroy their lives. Whereas Jesus said, what did he say? It's he who would gain his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake of the gospels will find it but you just can't tell that to anybody. And that's what it is. Maybe there's something that's God intentionality about that, that refines the heart through faith. It's freedom for the prisoners. It's recovery of sight for the blind. I think of John's gospel here and the way in which he marries up a miracle 
with a parable and how we've got a man born blind and then Jesus described as the light of the world. His name is the light of the world and it's tied in with somebody who is born blind and then they can see and then you see along with that not too far away from it in John's gospel Jesus I am the light of the world. He who walks in darkness uh, will, will have the light of life. Um, and what does it mean to, to have the light of life? What does it mean? Jesus is the light of the world. What does light do? Well, where there is darkness, you switch the light on, you can see where you're going. You know where you stand. You can find your way. When you've got light, you can see what you didn't see before. It's all about illumination. It is about being unafraid to be exposed. There is a transparency in light. It's people that do dark deeds that hide in darkness. Burglars going out dressed in dark clothes in the middle of the night in order to get up to things, hoods and masks in order to hide away, but there's no need for anything like that. When we walk, in the light of Jesus. To release the oppressed is an expansion on this. This is a picture here of prisoners who, um, a prison being opened when newly released prisoners see the light of day. That's the imagery that we've got here. And it's illustrated again by the healing work of Jesus, healing a man born blind. And we take this same message to the world. And as we know, not everyone receives the message of the gospel. Some people are positively hostile, but others will believe. Don't be discouraged by the knockbacks. I was fishing this week for trout up in the loch. My friend, who's a lot better fisherman than I, he caught three, I caught none. But I had my net with me. Because if I get into the mindset of he's always going to catch the fish and I'm not going to catch any, I won't have my net with me. And whenever I don't have my net with me, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to catch a fish and I'm not prepared to bring it in. Be prepared to lead others to, the, to Christ because they will believe there are those outside just like you and I. When we share the Word of God, with whichever way we do it, whether it's a testimony, whether it's explaining something in a long-term relationship, where it's inviting to the church, whatever it is, they might just thank you. They've just been waiting for you to invite them along to the church. I said, I thought you'd never ask. And why did we never ask? Because we thought they would never be interested. There are those who will believe. It's interesting in this passage how they all speak well of Jesus to begin with, and then some of them start to grumble. Yeah. Isn't he just Joseph's son? Who does he think he is? Jesus picks up on it. And he says something that infuriates the people. He says it's during the famine, Elijah was sent to the Gentile widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, even though there were many widows in Israel. Elijah sent to one of the Gentiles. And Elisha, God's instrument in cleansing Naaman from his leprosy, and he's a Syrian, he's not a Jew, even though there are plenty of people in Israel who are suffering from leprosy that Elijah didn't go and heal. 
Oh, they didn't like that. They take him to the edge of the cliff to throw him over and he escapes through them because his time had not yet come. He detects unbelief and contempt among the listeners. And there will be those who don't like it. But there will also be those who believe and see the fruit of the ministry of Jesus, not only the disciples, not only those on the day of Pentecost who are filled with the Spirit, not only the powerful preaching at which 3,000 men, let alone women and children, come to know the Savior, but the proliferation of the church crossing cultural boundaries from Jews to Gentiles and then spreading through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, just as Jesus said, all those many years ago, not with a sword, but with a sacrifice. People who, who, who spoke of what they knew to be true without, without any doubt whatsoever. Judge for yourselves whether it is right for us to listen, to listen to you rather than God, but we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's what Peter and John say when they're arrested and intimidated by the authorities for preaching the good news. We cannot help but speak of what we've seen and heard. We're going to obey God, of course. And it is the living uh, evidence of Christ's resurrection, which we remembered at Easter time, that was convincing and the power of the Holy Spirit given on the day of Pentecost that enabled the the believers to be bold in the face of severe opposition that enabled the church to advance in the way that it did and for it to exist in the way that it does with the millions of believers throughout the world. Today, God is still active and at work. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of Jubilee is being referred to here. And if you go know a little bit about the Old Testament, every 50 years there was a leveling in the society, well, there was meant to be. People who have been, and it happens in all of, of society, those of you who have been studying this, you'll know a lot more about uh, sociology in the, than I do, the way in which, um, or politics even, of how over decades the rich become richer and the poor become poorer. It happens. There, are, there just seems to be this, this um, whatever it is, polarization that takes place. And sometimes it's corrected by revolutions. Sometimes it's corrected in other ways. And we try and it's dealt with in politics and people go left wing or right wing and they've got all kinds of theories about it. I've never studied politics at all. I understand a little about it in terms of what happened then. It was no different then. The people who uh, became, who didn't seem to have the same skill sets or whatever it was or for whatever circumstances, uh, there were those who, be who potentially became richer and those who became poorer and those who were very poor could sell themselves into slavery and they were in debt. But every 50 years on the year of Jubilee, all the debts were cancelled and the slaves were set free. It was an amazing thing. It's a great way of correcting the inequalities within, this, within the, 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 uh, the society. It was something that God gave to them. And when Jesus speaks about Jubilee here, 
It's to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's speaking about the year of Jubilee. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor in spiritual terms. And this isn't a political message from Jesus. This is a message about the principles of what it means for slaves to be freed, for debts to be canceled, for ancestral property to be returned to the original family, for Jubilee essentially was to abolish poverty. The principles of Jubilee are in the gospel. So, ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit according to Jesus looks like this. It has a strong social implication as well as a spiritual implication. These two are not in opposition. These not, aren't separated. These two belong together. They're all part of the kingdom message of Jesus. The Spirit-filled life is a transformed life. It's a life in which we share together as believers within the church. We don't just go it alone to do ministry. We do it together as church and as churches together. It's what explains a, a movement of God through the ongoing witness of the church throughout the world today. It's what Tear Fund and BMS are all about. The way in which they bring a holistic message to people, and we partner with them. And it covers all the bases. Good news to the poor, the, the absolute pure gospel that's, that is, you can't, be, you can't preach Christianity without preaching the word. For freedom, deliverance, spiritual insight, equality, the alleviation of poverty, the granting of justice, are some of these outworkings of the good news of Jesus and it's something we see, something we observe. This isn't an exhortation of, you're not doing it, so you, should, you better go, get on with it. Uh, that's, I don't know why we do that as preachers, because we're always doing it, just so we can maybe do it a little bit better sometimes, and we can be encouraged to do so when we see actually what we are already doing. If you ain't doing it, there's something seriously wrong with our Christianity, but you are doing it. Because God the Holy Spirit lives within us. And he's in the church. Be encouraged by that. We're not patting ourselves on the back. We're just being encouraged that God is at work within us. And if there's a little fire burning in here for good from God, let it burn brighter. If you've been listening to this about being filled with the Spirit and what it means to be saturated with God, maybe there have been a few closed doors. Well, I'll let God into that part of my life, but not into this part of my life. Why do we do that? Why are we hesitant? God may leave us there. He, 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 uh, is it Holman Hunt there? No handle on the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and he with me. Interesting thing. That message was to a church. And we think of it in terms of the gospel to people who aren't in church. But actually to a church. The handle was missing and somebody said, oh, the handle's missing. He's, he's made a mistake. 
He hadn't made a mistake. He left the handle off the outside of the door because the handle's on the inside of the door and it's only from the inside. He's not going to barge the door down. They're okay. He's not going to barge the door down. He knocks. And he's knocking tonight. Maybe. Because you know that door that's closed. You know where the handle is. He's saying, I'd like to come in, but I'm not going to force my way in. I'm not going to force my way in. I'll leave that with you. But if you'd like to pray with somebody, if, if I sense the Spirit of God at work here, and take it further. If, you, if you're not sure how to do this yourself, but you know somebody here you can speak with, he says, look, just pray with me over this, would you? Let's just find a little quiet place somewhere in the church. Nobody needs to know. Say a little prayer with me so I can open that door and let God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into that area of my life where I've kept him out for so long. Because I want Jesus to be Lord of my life and I'm overcoming my fears of what I think I might be losing through this. But I'm prepared even to lose something because of my love for Jesus. If that, if that resonates with you, I leave it with you. You know what to do. If you can't do it on your own, try doing it on your own, but if you can't do it on your own, talk to somebody. And you folks, that somebody might speak to you, be prepared. And God will give you grace to help your brother or your sister to find peace and find the presence of God in their lives in ways perhaps they've longed for for a long time, but held back until now. Ross, do you want to carry on here and pick up and finish up? Are you okay with that? Thanks.